Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. I'm glad you're here. Uh, I guess you got the message last week that those of you who are in first service don't have to pick up the chairs. So I'm glad to see that you returned. My name is Jeremy. Uh, I get to preach here, and I'm delighted that you've joined us to worship. Um, if you're new to Midland Free, there's all kinds of cool stuff that we have, and I'm sure you can find your way around eventually. But feel free to say hey to anyone sitting next to you, and if they don't know, they'll just point you to someone who does. There's blue Bibles in the back, and if you uh, don't have a Bible, you can keep one. If you need one for today, just open it up and feel free to follow it along. I need to follow up from uh, an illustration that I used last week, though. There's a couple things that sometimes I get, um, you know, feedback on the sermon, and I'm happy to in interact with people. There's often a lot that I leave out that needs uh, further explanation, but it's, a, you know, to me, a relatively short period of time. Maybe not to you, I don't know. But to me, it's a short period of time, and I have to communicate, and so that means cut, 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 cut. Uh, one of the things that I said last week that I was uh, corrected on was that uh, w my family is not above bribery. The reality is, my wife said, well, not bribery, you know, earning. We're, we're against bribery, but not against earning. I'm like, okay, okay, good point. So I need to clarify that. So I want to give someone a chance to earn this morning. Uh, how many of you were, please raise your hands, were in church last week? Were you in church? Okay. So let's do that again for me. I need a little bit more time. All right. I'm really looking for a child who was, okay? So I think I only see one child. Very good. All right. We got it. So um, is there someone from your family who's willing, like a child that's willing to come up and be a sermon illustration just for a little bit? Or are you scared? If that's too much, that's, that's too much? Or is, that, or is there someone who's willing to come up? Okay, come on up, young lady. We played I Dan, sorry you can't come. Come on up. Yes, ma'am. Come on up, please. Come up to the stage. All right. Dan, I'm, I know I didn't tell you guys this before. I apologize. I'm just going to check this one. Ready? All right. All right. Hold this, and you just put it by your mouth and talk. You're doing awesome. Okay. My name's Jeremy. What's your name? Naomi. Naomi. Okay, that's a beautiful name, by the way. I love the book of Ruth. And did you know, this is actually true, someday we'll talk about it on Sunday. The book of Ruth is actually not about Ruth. It's about Naomi. Ruth is a flat character who never changes. Naomi goes up and down. So it's actually the book of Naomi. Yeah, that's true. See there? Uh-huh. Very good. All right. Yeah, you got her. Okay, you're really going to get her here in a minute. But I'm afraid, here's the thing. Do you remember the sermon illustration from last week? No, it was something about 10 and $5. Do you remember that part about getting rich? Oh, okay, you're at a different place. Okay, well, the sermon illustration, see, I can see that's why you probably stuck your tongue out. It's because you don't remember it. Um, does anybody else remember the sermon illustration from last week? Anybody? Okay, how's it go? Just say it out loud. Yes, I can see. This is how it was. Last week we talked about your tongue and various things, and it, it was the idea of getting rich or getting poor. And so if you said something good, 
you would get $10. If you said something bad, I would take away $5. And the question was, at the end of the week, will you be rich or not? So my question was going to be to you this morning, if you remembered that illustration, which is not your fault because you weren't here, but if you did, is there anything kind you said this week? Is there anything nice you did? Anything at all? I'm giving you just an open softball. Anything you did? Naomi, here you go. Go ahead and share it with everybody. I didn't really say it, but uh, today I went over to my little brother, Paul, and gave him a big hug. All right. Do hugs count? Okay. Then here you go. I got to follow up on that illustration. There's $10. Now you're rich. Thank you for coming on up. Good job, Naomi. Okay. I'm glad I don't use that illustration every week. Man, no more of that. Thank you, Naomi. I appreciate it. She's actually pretty good at air hockey, too. We had a good time yesterday at the roller rink. Praise God. Um, Today we're talking about James, or well, we're not talking about James, but we're in the book of James. And we're beginning in verse 13. It's got some cool stuff in there. But I want to tell you, I actually might need your help to remember something. Uh, Things fall out pretty quick uh, from my hard drive. But... Here is, there's this movie that I saw several years ago. I can't, I honestly can't remember what it was. But I, I don't remember being that impressed with the movie. But there was this one character in it. And it wasn't even the protagonist or the main character or the hero or anything like that. It was a sidekick, this side character that only showed up on occasion. But he was just this awesome individual. I was like, that's it, man. That is faith right there. And what it was is this, and you guys seriously can go look for it, and if you find it, send it to me, and next time I'll play the clip maybe. But here's what happens is this one wanderer, this traveler, this um, main character is uh, out in the middle of the desert, and he thinks he's going to die, and he's on this adventure, and I can't remember what, what the reason was or anything like that, but he's either running for his life or trying to save somebody or something, some amazing story like that. Got it? So you're all in suspense. Great story. I don't remember what it was, but it's really cool. (laughs) Ready? All right, so he's running along, and he thinks he's going to die, and all of a sudden, this guy seems to come out of nowhere in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and of course, he's a rather dark-skinned fellow. He uh, is Arabic, or he speaks Arabic. He's an Arab. He carries one of those circular scimitar swords, and he's got this vest on, but no shirt, and he's bulging with muscles, you know, and he's just in this incredible species of humanity. And there he is just out of the blue, and the guy looks at him, and he's like, what are you doing, you know? And he's like, at, you know, inshallah, or as God wills. And they're walking into a sandstorm, and he's like, uh, you're going to die. And he's like, as God wills, you know? And then all throughout the movie, this character just shows up at these strange times where they're the the good guy is surrounded by a bunch of thieves and they're about to kill him and this guy walks in and he's like, what are you going to do? And you're dying. You're going you're gonna to die. And he's like, as God wills. And that's how he just takes all of life and this incredible faith was just amazing and beautiful and the impact it had on me is how free this guy must be. I mean, he can just lay down anything, walk away, no big deal, and his whole attitude in life is just as God wills. It's nearly bordering on fatalism, and of course, if taken too far, it could be considered such, but 
the, the impact that it made on me was significant because I could watch this guy just totally submit himself to the sovereignty of God. And as such, he wasn't afraid of sandstorms. He wasn't afraid of burglars. He wasn't afraid of whatever. He was just, I'm going forward. I don't care who likes me. I don't care who doesn't. I don't care what happens. I'm just going with God's plan for the world. I'm good. And it was amazing. I mean, he was, in a strange way, you could actually say he was meek. He was meek. Although he's this huge, powerful, scary, dangerous individual, he was gentle and kind, non-offensive, had no fear whatsoever, and could just walk forward in faith saying, whatever God wills. So I'm not worried about it. That, my brothers and sisters, I think is in fact the message of James chapter 3 verses 13 and following. It um, is broken down in several different ways. Um, I'll, I'll show you a structure. Uh, the slides are a little out of order, so that's my fault. I'm just coming to them more quickly. But if there's a structure slide around here, I'll show, uh, show them that real quick. And the way this thing works is rather interesting. It's, it's kind of typical of some New Testament letters. It starts out with a thesis sentence or a main point. He said, this is my main point. And I'm, I'm showing you all this for a reason. Trust me, I'm going somewhere for this. So it starts out, this passage is structured with a thesis, a main statement. And then after that, he sort of follows it up with two different lists. And these lists kind of prove what he was saying. So there's a vice list, what not to do, the bad stuff. And then there's a virtue list, what to do, or the good stuff. And actually, if you look at scripture, I've, I've actually done a paper on this once, the literary genre of list. There's, there's list in scripture, both in the Old Testament and New. If you're a list keeper and you're the person that likes to keep list, you'll be pleased to know that God actually uses list as well. And so there's all kinds of lists in the Old Testament and there's list in the New. And often in the New, they're around moral qualities or virtues, such as the case here where there is a vice list, the bad things, and then there's a virtue list, the good things. And of course, there's a lot in there, and I'm not going to spend the bulk of the time, you know, fine-tuning every single little word. But instead, what I want to get out is the main thesis or sentence, the main idea, and help that come across to you today. And so that's going to be my goal. And I think what comes across from that main idea, from that main sentence, is this, this theme this is the theme from James chapter uh, 3, verses 13 through 18. The theme is that wisdom comes from meekness. Wisdom comes from meekness. There's another way you could say that. You could actually even say it the other way around. You could say the meekness of wisdom. And the reason I say that is this. If you, let's look at the first sentence. I'm just going to show you the first and I'll read the rest. But let's look at the first sentence of James chapter 3. It's verse 13. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So what happens here in the original language is that this is in prostate Sophia, Sophia being wisdom, and it's basically the idea that the first two are in a uh, construction in Greek, which means it belongs to wisdom. So this is the meekness of wisdom. It's a, it's a genitive of source, which means nothing to you. But what it means is this, is that 
I think the key piece, the key element, the main thing for understanding this whole passage is the idea of meekness. Okay, so the, I, the main idea is meekness, and I'm just going to hone in on that subject and on that topic for the rest of today. So you may think, oh, this is a topical sermon. Actually not. This is fully expositional and even exegetical. goes in-depth saying this is the main hinge or the catalyst that's going to switch you uh, from not understanding and not being able to do this to fully understanding and being able to apply it to your life. So we're just going to zoom in on this subject of meekness. This is what meekness is. This is the way I'll define it. It says, here's, here's the definition slide. I know I've got these all over the place. It says this, finds, meekness is this, it's one who finds refuge in the Lord and commits one's way entirely to him. This is that character in the movie I described to you. Meekness is one who finds refuge in the Lord and then commits their way entirely to him. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and look at uh, James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. Uh, I'll read those to you, and then we will uh, take them apart one by one. This is James 3, verses 13 and following. It says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice, even at times in the church. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So with that in mind, the idea that there's a thesis and there's a couple different lists, let me give you my structure for today. And I've got a little bit extra on there. I should have cut those out, but those are my notes for my head. But basically the idea is that meekness is, number one, countercultural. The first thing it is, is it is countercultural. And the second thing is, it is supernatural. Those are the first two. Uh, and then the third part that we're going to say is, I'm going to say, here's the encouragement of meekness. So basically three, three movements today. I'm going to start with what meekness is not, and then I'm going to go to what meekness is, and then I'm going to show you how it looks in your life. So here's what it's not, here's what it is, and here's how it plays out. I use the word countercultural because all of my examples come from cultural examples, but you could, if you wanted to remember it better, say one is unnatural and the other is supernatural. Meekness is unnatural, or it is unnatural and it is also supernatural, and here's an encouragement to it. So these three things, and this is what meekness is. So let's look at the first. Meekness is countercultural. First of all, meekness was against the culture of the time. Um, as you saw in Christ and in his followers, uh, this, this uh, moral attribute, this quality was different from the people around them. 
The, Gre the Romans, I almost said the Greco-Roman, that's a culture, but the Romans are people who literally see themselves as sort of saviors to the world. They look at all the other races, all the other ethnicities, and all the other whatevers, and they say, these barbarian, uneducated, uncivilized, you know, whatevers, we need to conquer them. And once we do, and we've conquered them, and then we can bring education, and we can bring, uh, you know, wealth and business and society and peace and roads and everything else that our economy and structure provides, as a result, they'll be better off. So it's actually our duty to conquer these people, and we're doing them a favor by making them subservient to us. So the Roman rulers would look at themselves as the almighty supreme conquerors who, you know, say, hail Caesar and all of this. And as a result, the people who are underneath them are subservient, meek, and whatever. That is not a quality to be admired. Instead, the quality to be admired is the strong, conquering Roman centurion hero. I'm coming in. I'm overtaking. I'm powerful. I'm supreme. Look at me. Look at what I have done. Well, this is obviously different than the way Jesus approached his life, who says of himself, you know, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and gentle and humble and all of these things that the Romans would be scratching their heads saying, this is your king? This is your Messiah? That's the best you can do? Come on. <laughs> we'll show you a real king. Watch this. That's not a king. So it's countercultural. It's countercultural for the Roman people, and it's countercultural for us as well. My guess is when you think of the word meekness, you probably think of things like humble and gentle and kind. And because you're in a Christian circle, all of those things are considered good things. However, if you talk to someone at the gym or somewhere else and you begin to say this stuff, they may sort of want to stop you at some point because they'll say, okay, yeah, yeah, that's good. But, you know, you don't want to get walked on. You don't want to get stepped on. You don't want to get taken advantage of. And at some point, meekness becomes a weakness. It's not really a strength, but it's something that's going to hurt you. So how do we balance that? Because in our culture, we value what I would call or some philosophers call rugged individualism or the idea that, you know, you got to be like John Wayne, you know, just out there on your own and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you can do it. Don't worry. Just try hard and it's all going to be okay. But you got to look out for number one because no one else is. It's your job to make yourself. Go for it. Be an individual. Go girl, go guy, go whatever. But Follow this cultural value which tells, that your main, tells you that your main job is to look out for number one. So our culture kind of plays it off as well. Finally, I would say that not only is it counter to Greco-Roman culture, not only is it uh, counter to American culture, but I'd say it's counter to human nature in general. Uh, fallen human nature, and let me be very clear about that, I mean fallen human nature is by nature broken, selfish, and short-sighted. And the reason I want to emphasize uh, fallen human nature is because a lot of people just assume, well, we're human, therefore we're sinful. The reality is original human humanity, real humanity, is free from sin. Real humanity is like Adam and Eve or Jesus. Adam and Eve before the fall Jesus his entire life. 
So when you think of yourself as human, you don't inherently have to think of yourself as sinful. When you think of yourself as a fallen human, you are inherently sinful. Now, in this time, you will be affected by sin for your entire life, by its desires, by its results, and stuff like that. But ultimately, when God restores you to your full humanity in the resurrection, you will be free from sin. And that is when you will be most human and most like the image of God that you were created in. So that's an aside, but that's important when we consider our natures. So here we are as fallen human beings, and we are naturally then, I would say, driven by self-interest. Now, if you know anything about economics, you've probably heard a guy by the name of Adam Smith. Uh, he's one of the original fathers of capitalism and the, the ideas of liaison sphere and all these other stuff, which sort of is the philosophical underpinnings of our free market economy, the way the United States runs and operates its business as opposed to socialism or some other structure. And one of the fundamental ideas that he, he said is, look, goods and resources are scarce. There's only so many. So how do we most efficiently allocate those things? How do we go about doing that? You know, because you don't want the, the things that are most scarce all of a sudden to be <laughs> quickly Bent and then you're done and then you have the stuff that's worthless. You want to guard the stuff that's scarce and distribute the stuff that's not, etc., etc. So how do we do it? And he comes up with this system based on, you know, supply and demand and all this other stuff and price and it regulates quantity and etc., etc. But the fundamental idea is that people will do what is in their own best self-interest that you will be careful about your money because you want to preserve it and you will spend it upon what's most valuable to you. And therefore, you know, a diamond is going to be more valuable than a lump of coal or etc. You know, you could go down the whole list, but the idea is that your self-interest will drive what you do, which will make this whole big system more efficient because you're not going to waste your money. <laughs> you're going to be careful about this stuff doesn't grow on trees, right? It's hard to come by. So you will be very intentional and careful. That's the idea. Well, what happens is, and it, is that idea which works for economics gets really strange when it comes to human relations. Because then if you're still following through on, hey, I do what's in my own best interest, you're really just looking out for number one and you're not concerned about anybody else. And I'm concerned that this idea from our economy has played into our relationships as well, affecting our culture, being true to our nature. But the problem is what works well for the business of earth doesn't necessarily work well for the business of heaven. That is what James says in chapter 16 where he says, where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Even while it may, the idea of self-interest, govern economics rather efficiently, it doesn't govern the church or human relationships well. So what the Bible calls us to then is something very different, something more, that which is countercultural or unnatural to us. The Bible calls us 
to meekness. That which is supernatural and that which is beyond. And that is why I think when you pursue scripture, what you will see is every description of the church or the new humanity or our identity in Christ as being sort of a third culture. It doesn't describe you as Americans or Caucasians or Hispanics or African Americans or this class or that class. It describes you as a new creation, a new people, a new kingdom, a new citizenship, citizenship, an entirely different culture. You are third culture people and your primary allegiance is to be a citizen of heaven not of earth. And therefore, that king and those values in that culture is to trump your king and your values in your culture. And so when you come together as a church, everybody from different backgrounds, social, economic, whatever, then there still should be a common culture because we share the same moral values. We may have different accents, we may have different hairdos, we may have different appearances, but at the end of the day, we're part of the same family. Because you have been made into a new humanity. Therefore, there's no more Greek, there's no more Jew, there's no more Gentile, slave, nor free, male, nor female. Anything else, nothing matters. You're a new people of God. And this new way of thinking, this new value system, this new humanity, this new family, this new group, this new people, this new whatever you want to call it, has to trump everything else. No pun intended. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> It has to overcome all of your values. I read about uh, an article once of missionary kids, and it's interesting how they describe them. Sometimes they'll call them TCKs, or third culture kids. And what happens is this, is they may have, let's just say, for example, it could be any, but I'm just using this one because we get it. Let's say it's a Caucasian family that moves to, you know, the continent of Africa. So, or let's even say Europe or something, whatever, it doesn't matter. They move somewhere where they look different and they speak different and they come from a different cultural background. And in their family, they eat these American foods, pizza, hamburgers, hot dogs, whatever, all the stuff that kills you and makes you fat and makes us American. Um, they eat all these things and then... They go out into another culture, which is different from them, and their friends are all different from them, and they interact with that culture, and they have to learn kind of how to interact with that culture, but they're not really that culture, and if they go home on furlough, then they notice that their interactions from being in that culture are different than the interactions with the kids in their culture, and they're not really sure which culture they are because they're just sort of in between. They've created their own whole new culture because they're like these these aliens or these foreigners living in a foreign land, so picking up on some of it, but not all of it, and where are we? And sometimes it can really mess them up and damage them emotionally in various ways and cause identity issues and yada yada, because at the end of the day, they are what missiologists call a third culture kid. And that was an enlightening concept to me, because I think even if you're not a missionary kid, you've probably at some point felt like a third culture person. Man, this world just is not my home. This place does not fit. I don't understand it, but this shoe, it just doesn't fit. 
I try to work, but everybody at work has different values than I do. And yeah, I want to be efficient. And yeah, I want to do the best I can. But I don't want to cut corners or compromise my morals or mess up my family or whatever else or politic or infight or backbite or whatever. I'm different. I don't get it. I don't like it. And I know I got to operate within it. But something's not a fit here. What's going on? You're a third culture person. And that's why it makes sense when you sing these songs like, you know, this world is not my home, that you mean it and you feel it because you know you belong somewhere else and it's not just in your home state, it's in your home of heaven forever and ever in eternity with Christ the Lord where you see, oh, this is where I fit. This is where I feel at home. This is what I was made for. This is the new humanity free from sin, the eternal culture I've always longed for. Now I've found my place. Here I am. Here's where it's at. You are a third culture person. And that is why you are to be meek. Meekness is not from our human earthly culture. It is from a foreign culture. It is one that is higher than us. It is alien to us and comes from above. That is why this text talks specifically about the meekness or wisdom that comes from above. It's different. It's different. So first of all, meekness is countercultural. Second of all, it is supernatural. It is a third culture. And that, that's the first point I want to make when saying that it is supernatural. It's a third culture. But I'd also like to say that it is very different from what we think in that, as earlier I described meekness, is we often think it is primarily towards humanity. In reality, the quality of meekness is primarily something that we have towards God. Meekness is primarily towards God. What do I mean by that? Well, here's an example. Uh, I don't know anything at all really about horse racing or horse breeding, but I read that southern horse readers, breeders have this saying that says, the meekest horse wins the race. The meekest horse wins the race. Now, how is that? Because the, the movies I watch always show the wild stallion, you know, that's untamable and eventually he figures out how to run down the track and he wins by leaps and bounds because all that passion and fury is going in the right direction. And that's what they mean when they say the meekest horse wins the race. What they're saying is, you know, if you're a powerful stallion, it really doesn't matter if you're running the wrong way. <laughs> it's of no benefit to you whatsoever to have tons of strength and be headed in the wrong direction. But a horse that's even less strong might get in the right lane and make the right move and follow its jockey's leadership so it hangs back and then pulls forward at the right time and does what it needs to do and wins. Because the meekest horse, the one that responds to the training, the one that is teachable, will win the race. And if you're not meek, what happens? Well, I had another person who knows a lot about horses tell me this. Once when they were a little girl, they were riding a horse that was like an old barrel horse or something like that, and its mouth had become hardened from all the jerking back and forth on the bit. And as a result, this horse wasn't nearly as responsive as some of her other horses. So she's going down this path, and it broke from a trot to a run, and all of a sudden it was in an uncontrollable run, and she knew the pavement was coming up, and if that horse hit the pavement at the full gallop, 
bang, knees go out. She's in big trouble. It was going to be a mess. And so she's pulling on the reins as hard as she can, but that horse is not pulling back. What's going to happen? Well, eventually, she decided to jump off, and that's why she can sit here today. It's because she survived. But the reality is, is that a real, the best horse has to have a sensitive mouth so they can turn easily and respond to the rider's direction. So too with us as followers of Christ. That is what it means to be meek. Let us look at this definition of meekness. Again, it says, meekness is this. It is first and chiefly toward God, not towards other people. Stop with that. Start with this. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing. We say, okay, as you will. Lord, you brought this person into my life, and I'm not sure that I really appreciate them yet, but somehow they're here for my sanctification. Okay, I submit to your will. That's how you start. And as you do that, then how do you think your attitude towards that person is going to change? But if you're just in this spot where you're like, uh-uh, not changing, no way, Lord, you're not, this is not right, how do you think your attitude towards that person is going to be? But the meekest horse is the one that wins the race. So you adjust yourself to God's bridle or his bit. And as he moves you, you say, okay, I'm moldable, I'm teachable, I'm meek. I have that temper of spirit which accepts his dealings with me, the circumstances, the relationships, the divine design, whatever, without disputing. I am that horse. And here then is how it plays out both towards God and towards other people. Watch this. And by the way, if you're trying to write these fast and you can't keep up, that's okay. You can download them online, so don't worry about it. But here is meekness. First towards God, and then how it plays out towards people. Number one, as towards God, therefore meekness accepts God's dealings without murmur or resistance as absolutely good and wise. That's where wisdom comes in. Oh, God is smarter than me. He knows more than me. He's doing the right thing. Maybe then I'll accept that. I don't really like it. I don't understand it. This isn't the way I would have chosen. But you know what? Perhaps, perhaps, just maybe, God is a little smarter than me. And maybe I should go with it then. Okay, I will. Meekness towards God accepts his dealings as good and wise. And then, as a result of that, what happens, what I was trying to demonstrate earlier, is as towards man then, it accepts opposition and insult and provocation as God's permitted ministers of both chastening and refining us demanded by the infirmity and corruption of sin. So then, we believe that God is good. We believe that God is wise. And we say to him, Lord Jesus, come what may. What you do is right. And I don't always understand it, but I'm the horse and I want to be meek. And so move me where you want. And that person, that circumstance, that trial, that health issue, that job, that whatever comes in, you go, whew, not what I would have chosen, but not my will, but yours. Inshallah Allah. As God wills it. Whatever. Lord, as you will. That's meekness. And that results then in the proper treatment of other people. 
It makes you considerate, as James chapter 3, verse 17 says, it will make you full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, and sincere. Those are all those lists. That is the result of this. Jesus does it better than anyone, of course, and I have to read you this because it's a beautiful example. Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 and following, Paul is telling the people this. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How? Well, do nothing from selfish ambition, sorry Adam Smith, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among you which was in Christ Jesus. There's meekness. Does anyone really think Jesus was weak? I don't. Here's a guy that endured way more than anybody else could ever even have imagined. He's not weak. He stands up to the highest rulers in the, in the land, looks them in the eye, and scares them to death. Gives them nightmares. What are we going to do about this guy? And yet, at the same time, he's willing to get down in the dirt and defend the prostitute. How do you combine those two powers of extreme power and incredible humility? The wisdom, the bridge there is the catalyst of meekness, of accepting God's treatment of us as good and wise and kind, finding Let's go back to the original definition, if we could, on the slide, please. Here's the definition of meekness from the very start. It finds refuge in the Lord and ultimately commits one's way to Him. That's how you do it. Now, let me read you. Here's your encouragement, then, as we get ready to wrap up. Psalm 37, and I want you to watch this quality flow through this psalm. And actually, at the very end, here's a hint. You'll hear Jesus quote this psalm in the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount where he says, blessed are the meek. You will hear that. He's quoting this psalm. So this is Psalm 37. How do we find refuge in the Lord? <clears throat> when everybody around us, around us is seeking their own interest where they're trying to kick our tail and do their worst, what do we do? Psalm 37. It says this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. Even though they win sometimes, for soon they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out his evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Here comes Matthew 5. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait upon the Lord shall inherit the earth. That's the meek. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more, and though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. 
But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundance and peace. What does Jesus say? Blessed are the meek for what? They win in the end. <laughs> it doesn't look like it right now, but they do. And when he says inherit the earth, let's be clear, it doesn't mean they live in it as tenants who have an overseer or landlord. That's not inheritance. If I get an inheritance, it means the check is signed and the money is mine. They inherit the earth. They get it. They own it. They possess it. It is theirs to rule over. They win in the end. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. In the end, don't worry about it. God wins. It's true that life is tough. Resources are scarce. People are mean. And it is hard to get by. But when you're in that situation, you locate yourself in Christ, you find refuge in the Lord, you commit your way to him, and then you don't worry about what comes and you just say, as God wills, whatever. Doesn't mean you're getting bullied, doesn't mean you're becoming a doormat or anything else. What it means is you find your security in Christ. You believe so firmly and strongly in him that nothing else scares you. That Jesus is such a king and such a conqueror that he makes the, small, the biggest Roman whatever look small. People can do their worst and we can endure. And that is a tremendous strength. And that is called meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength. It takes much more to respond well than to lash out and fight back or to retreat in fear. It means to hold steady in the way with no fear, trusting God to do what's right. That is what we mean when we say, thy will be done. As God wills it, be the horse, be meek. Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, you're so good to us. Help me not to be a stubborn mule, Lord, that just wants to do whatever he wants. Help me to be moldable and pliable and tender and open to change. Lord, help me to be meek. Help me to be meek towards you and your dealings and your circumstances and your choices for my life so that as a result, I can be kind and gentle and humble to others. Help me to accept each day and each circumstance and each trial and each temptation as a gift that grows me and refines me and gets rid of sin. Lord, change me. Work in me the gift of meekness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.